Age to Practice, applying educational reading in the classroom. Join in the conversation using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. Page to Practice is a podcast focusing on the application of education research in the classroom. Each episode features a conversation with a different guest, teachers, authors and others interested in education, talking about what the phrase from page to practice means to them and the importance of applying evidence to classroom practice. Hi and welcome to Series 5, Episode 13. Today I speak to Singh, author of the book Strengthening the Student Toolbox in Action. We speak about the book and how he hopes it can support teachers' practice. I even got to ask him a question from Bradley Bush, who I spoke to a couple of weeks previously. Hi, so today I'm here with Singh and actually... You know, I'm just going to ask you to introduce yourself, please, Singh. Who are you? Why are you here? <laughs> cool. Thanks, Bex. Um, yeah, I'm Singh. I uh, currently work for Ambition Institute as one of their tutors, working on various programs, including uh, their master's program and the instructional coaching program. Prior to that, I was a lead practitioner of secondary maths, where I'm based in the southeast. Uh, and last year, was fortunate enough to work with uh, Tom Sherrington and John Cat and released uh, Danlowski's Strengthening the Student Toolbox in Action. Great. And what does the phrase from page to practice mean to you? Um, I think it's it sums up how I really started thinking about CPD. So prior to that, it was really like you hear some stuff, you try it out and sort of figure out if it works or not. And it's just a, a way of trying stuff that's just like uh, better for one of, for one of a better term. Just got some evidence behind it um, and being a bit more... Uh, strategic with what I'm actually trying to do to improve my practice. That's great. You're listening to From Page to Practice. Join the conversation on Twitter using hashtag PagePracticePodcast. So, um, you know, we, you've already mentioned, you know, the book and, what, and why you're here. So how did you get involved with the Inaction series? Um, so I came across it, I was, uh, when I was teaching, I was mentoring, uh, at that point, a, t- a trainee teacher who was given, um, Tom Sherrington's book, uh, Rosenshine's Principles in Action. Um, uh, and they showed it to me, like just by pure coincidence. Uh, and I, th- I thought it was brilliant. Like, I thought it did a really good job of, um, translating some of these ideas from research and thinking about what it could look like in, in the classroom. Um, and, uh, I'd previously done that, just finished my master's course, um, also from my mission institute. And one of the first papers we get given on the course is Donovsky's Strengthening Student Toolbox. And I just thought it aligned really nicely with the inaction series. So I, I also then bought um, the Cognitive Load book from, from Ollie Lovell and um, Zoe Markens' book on generative learning. And it just seemed to, to fit that series really nicely. Um, so I reached out to John Cat and uh, yeah, sort of went from there. Yeah, great. There's there's all sorts of books in that series, aren't there? That are really kind of accessible for anybody who's listening who's not seen them, which would be surprising at this point. <laughs> but <laughs> they're really accessible, aren't they? Can you tell us a little bit about the series and what it's designed to do, just for anybody who doesn't know? Yes, for sure. So um, there, I want to say there's probably eight, nine books. I think uh, currently. And essentially, they all focus on a different 
um, paper or, or book from educational research. And they've tried to find ways to uh, summarize some of the key findings, key takeaways from the research uh, and sort of put them into um, like teacher friendly, like a more everyday language. And then think about what this might look like in classroom. So, uh, you know, to use some of the phrasing from the EEF, like what are the active ingredients that we might need to consider? What are some of the limitations that we might need to consider? Um, what what might this benefit? Why might it benefit? And, and um, yeah, just helping basically, you know, teachers are time and resource poor. So rather than having teachers trawl through loads and loads of education papers, like here's just a series that can do some of the heavy lifting for you. Exactly. So why this paper then? What made you say, yep, strengthening the student toolbox, that's that's what I want to focus on? Um so yeah, like like it was it was the first paper one of the first papers we were ever given in uh my master's programme. And that was really the first time I'd come across uh like evidence-informed research. I hadn't, like I said, prior to that, like it was real trial and error, like sharing best practice, like hearing it from colleagues and, and friends. Um and this was the first time I came across like the world. I didn't. I didn't know this was a thing. Like I didn't. I didn't know it was a thing to research how to teach or like some some of the best bets in teaching. So apart from this master program, I got on it. This is one of the first papers, and I just think for someone who was in my position, which is haven't really been exposed to research before, haven't done like my my degree was uh, physics, so it wasn't a sort of literature based degree. I didn't involve a lot of uh, like reading and in inverted commas. Um, for someone to come into this, it was really accessible. Like it's written, Professor Donoski does a really good job of writing it really accessible language, really like easy to understand terms, and covers like, absolutely loads of ground. It's it's only a small paper, um, I think maybe six or seven pages, but he covers loads of ground in this paper around some of the key ideas that then went on to influence some of my thinking. Um, so particularly, the, the one that stood out for me was when. He talks about interleaving because the, the example he shared was of maths. Uh, being a maths teacher, I got really excited about it. Um, and so it just like, yeah, it just struck a chord, I think, for, for many different reasons. It was accessible. It talked about maths. It covered a lot of ground. Um, yeah, I think it just struck a chord. And so I was like, well, you know, if, if you did that with me, hopefully you might do it with others as well and uh, try and share some of uh, like the original thinking behind that paper as well. Yeah, I totally agree. If if I was to be doing my CPD library around myself, the question of what first got you into evidence-informed practice, this paper was one of the first as well. So I'm totally cool. with you on that. So for those people who maybe haven't read the paper, haven't seen it, haven't had any interaction with it before, can we just have kind of a few few highlights for you? Sure. What's it about? So um, the, the actual toolbox paper is a summary of uh, a wider paper that Professor Donoski, along with a few colleagues, um, did. And they essentially said, right, we're going to take 10 strategies that um, students are like. And there were two sort of criteria, like what do students often do when it comes to studying? Like how do students, what strategies students pick? And what is your existing evidence around, what strategies have existing evidence around are, are, are shown to be effective? So those are two criteria and they came up with 10 strategies from that sort of sift. And then they researched, like, does it actually have an impact? So what are the benefits of the strategies? And, and, they, and they really looked at um, all of the potential research at the time. So the, the toolbox paper is about 10 years old. The original paper is, I, I think, 11 years old. Um, and so they looked at, yeah, like, what is the research at that time available around all of these strategies? So like retrieval practice, interleaving, uh, mnemonics, like th- all of those sorts of things. 
and they were testing the question I think essentially was do we like do we do we and our students study effectively like what are some of the most popular revision techniques and are they the best revision techniques to, to study uh, and the short answer was no like essentially what they found was like no and there's some very good reasons for that like um, there's some really good reasons why we as like a like a population as a species are so bad at studying um, and learning but uh, yeah that's essentially sort of where that research came from so there was this wider project um, much like much more academic paper m- m- probably a little bit more difficult to uh, access the languages and as sort of uh, everyday friendly um, and the toolbox was like a condensing of that research uh, showing the highlights so what does your book do then therefore to to help teachers put that into their practice what kinds of things are you hoping teachers are getting out of it yeah like I think there was um a, a, a sort of uh, I don't want to say a gap, like I don't want to do the, um, President Zanowski a disservice, but I think there was a, a, a bridge to cross between um, like the toolbox paper, which summarised this research really nicely, and thinking about how it could be taken into the classroom. Like, what does it mean for my everyday teaching? What might it look like? So some of the suggestions that are given in that paper like, are really helpful. But to give you some context, like I... I uh, read that bit about interleaving um, and based my uh, approach pretty much from that paper like I pretty much took that paper and then tried to do it in the classroom and it just like was an absolute car crash uh, went horribly wrong and so I was like well how how can I help colleagues to avoid making the same mistakes that I made and share some of the lessons that I learned one of the biggest ones be, being like there is no such thing as a like a perfect solution, right? Like every every one of these strategies has a benefit and a limitation. And and actually, when I went back to the paper when I was writing the book, I think that became clearer. Like I think I just got caught up in uh, in the techniques the first time around, and I missed some of the nuances that they were, Professor Donosky was trying to communicate. So I think yeah, the, the book was designed to communicate some of those nuances, delve a bit deeper into them, think hard about like that were like active ingredients, like what are the key features that I really want to embed if I'm trying to get this practice? And like, what are some of the things, or what are some of the signs that might tell me things aren't going as planned? Like what what do, what do would I want to be, uh, if I was doing this again, what are the things that I would be looking out for? So obviously that colleagues, when they're doing it, they can look out for similar things as well. So I'm going to throw a bit of a curveball here and I'm going to apologise. And uh, the other week, the other week when I was speaking to Bradley Bush and I was talking to him about who I was speaking to in future and I told him I was speaking to you and he said, do me a favour, ask him this question. And I went, oh, this this is a new twist. I've not done this before. He said, and this will make more sense to you than it did when he first said it to me. He said, ask him to talk through the virtuous and vicious cycles and how we get students (laughs) from vicious to virtuous. (laughs) Good, good question. So um, shout out to Bradley Bush, by the way. Appreciate appreciate it. He's been a like a great supporter um, and really generously shared his platform with me as well. So yeah, thank you to Bradley Bush. so he came along to the, like the first ever research ed talk I did. So based on some of the findings from the book, I uh, spoke at research at national conference last September. Um, and, and yeah, so one of the findings, and it comes back to the, so what we touched on earlier, like why, essentially, why are people so bad at learning? 
Um, and and the first thing is like when we say learning, we mean like the long term version of it. Like how I've only learned something if I can do it consistently over you know sustained length of time. Um, and the answer is like partly because there's like two cycles at work. So you have like the vicious cycle, which makes us feel like we're learning, but we're actually not. And uh, students and I include myself in this will do it all the time. So it comes to revision season, like April, May, June time before the exams. Uh, students will get the textbook, highlight loads of it, and then close that page and try and like, think of everything they've highlighted. And they'll be able to like magically recall everything. Uh, and so they'll feel like they're learning, right? Because they, they've just seen it. They've then put it away and still been able to be really successful and so they'll keep doing this technique because it, they they feel like it's working for them and so they get like pulled towards this uh less effective te- technique because the issue is even though they feel like they're learning they're not actually thinking particularly hard about it like it's, it's really plausible and i'm sure uh like both of us and, and people listening have been in situations where we've read a page we've highlighted stuff and then like been staring out the window whilst we're doing it, we're sort of daydreaming it, like we've been pretty passive in it. Um, like, we, like you get to the end of the page and you're like, well, I, I can't actually remember. Like I've, I've said the words in my head, but I can't actually remember what those words meant and what I've actually read. Um, and so we haven't like effortfully processed the stuff that we're doing. So there's pull towards these like less effective techniques. And then there's a push, like the, the virtuous cycle, which is something like retrieval practice. So like you'll you do something or you'll try and you learn something, you know, last week, let's say you learned, uh, I don't know, like t- 10 vocabulary words in French, like really obscure example, but it's fairly accessible. So 10 words in French, some vocabulary, you try and remember them. Like you'll probably won't remember all 10. You'll get some of them wrong. It will feel really hard as well. Like you, you'll feel yourself struggling. And so you'll feel like you're not actually learning for all of those reasons. Like it's harder, it, it, you get stuff wrong, you can't recall everything. And so you stop doing that technique because every, all the signals are telling you it's not helpful. And all the signals for the other techniques, like highlighting, like rereading, are telling you that it definitely is helpful. And so there's like, those are the two virtuous and vicious cycles. Like you're getting pulled towards less effective techniques because the feedback you get is, these are really effective, you're learning loads, it's easy, you're successful, and you get pushed away from more effective ones because the feedback you get is it's harder, you're getting stuff wrong, um, you can't remember everything, and so you're not learning. I can totally see now why he asked me to ask you that. Because <laughs> when he asked me, I thought this is a bit random that he's asking me to ask him this. But I totally see it now because it's that's a really good way of putting it. So, you know, I'm I'm not teaching at the moment, but when I was, I spent a lot of time, a lot of what I was doing in the the last kind of year that I was in my role was talking to students about how to revise and how to study and how to learn better and you're trying to use a lot of what comes out of this paper to talk to Mm. them about how to do it better um, and why what they were currently doing wasn't effective and what I was trying to sell to them I promise you is and actually your explanation there with the cycles and the telling them you know that they're getting all these signals telling them one thing actually is a lovely way to to be able to explain it so if that's you know, the type of thing that For people sure. can take away and say to students look you know you, this is why and that's a great a great explanation and and, and like I think there's 
a couple of things with that. Like, firstly, when often, like, we'll just tell students, like, make sure you revise. Like, don't, like go home tonight and revise. And when we say revise, like you say, like, the, the stuff that they're probably going to do isn't really going to be effective, like, nine times out of ten. But even if, even if we, like, tell them explicitly, like, do this, like, do some practice testing, don't do rereading, like, A, like, that's really hard to, like, overcome all of the signals that they're constantly getting from when they're getting stuff wrong to just focus on, like, oh, you know, my teacher said this, uh, and I'm going to put aside, like, all of my feelings, all of my stuff that I've been doing that's worked for me for the last, you know, 10, 11 years. Uh, even though, my, like, I, I trust my teacher, like, that's a really hard thing to do as a human. Um, and so, like, yeah, there's just, just a, a lot of difficulty and... There may be situations in which actually you, you probably are better off. Like if you can't recall anything, well, you're not going to benefit from retrieval practice because you can't retrieve anything. So you probably are better off rereading. So students, like, can students figure out when they should be retrieving and when they should be rereading, as well as focusing on one or the other? It, it is like it's a really difficult challenge. It's a really difficult challenge for adults, let alone you know, teenagers or younger that we're working with. Oh, absolutely. I've put myself in, in students' shoes recently because I've been studying for a diploma in digital learning design. And as I'm finishing it now, I've got a, um, the exam coming up in a few weeks' time. Right. And I have done the typical thing. I haven't started early enough with what <laughs> I need to do. And I know all the things that I should be doing, but it's actually really hard to make yeah. yourself do that. And that's me with the knowledge behind me of of all of the things that I know I should be doing more work and for all the reasons and you know you can shout from the rooftops about all that stuff but even then I'm struggling to make myself do what I know is going to work because it feels uncomfortable so what what do you think we can do for our students to to support them and kind of pushing through that discomfort almost to to keep going with it I think it's a really good question um, I think there are like potentially a few things like worth like full transparency at this point. I haven't tried any things myself. These things that I've come into since leaving the class. So I also left the classroom last year. Yeah. Um, so I haven't had a chance to try these things myself. Um, and I'm not necessarily basing it on like specific evidence around this. It's like general evidence that I'm sort of trying to like synthesize and share. So like that caveat uh, uh, aside, um, I think the first thing is like doing it in the classroom. So we, we can control what we can control, right? We, we don't know what students are going to do when they get out, leave the classroom. We, sometimes students might not have the uh, support, resources, facilities to, to engage in some of the things we're asking them to engage in. So the first thing is like do some of these things in the classroom. Like in the classroom, if you have if you're giving students time to study, if, if students have like revision sessions during your lesson time, if it's before an exam, like tell them to retrieve stuff, give them retrieval activities rather than some, uh, like letting them just sit there and highlight stuff from the textbook or from the exercise book. Um, the second thing is like the sort of culture you want to create and embed. And this is like a really long-term thing, right? Culture doesn't happen overnight, but getting students comfortable with like, getting things wrong if they're going away and doing it independently, they're more likely to persevere through getting things wrong. If they've done it over and over again in school and been told, like, it's okay, 
trust me, this is still going to benefit you. And they start to see those benefits over time, right? So if you've built that culture of error, like it's okay to get things wrong, it means we're going to get better in the future. Um, students are more likely to like embed that and, and let it become a part of themselves. So when they, they leave our classrooms, yeah, they're more likely to persevere through some of those obstacles. Um, so there's a couple of things. The like, first thing is like practicing what we preach, to put simply. The second thing is like a long-term approach, like one-off study skill sessions. Like, not to say that they're not helpful, but in and of themselves, they're unlikely to be enough just because that's not how like, behaviour change works in humans. Yeah, that's why I really like um, Helen Howe's book, The Revision Revolution, because she talks about how to embed it from you know day one and year seven and, and working it through. And I spoke to uh, Steph Lancake a, a little while ago in her episode's well, not when I'm speaking now, but the episode's coming out <laughs> shortly anyway. Um, and she's done a lot of work with that on now rolling out across the school. How can we be getting this in from right, okay. day one? So revision doesn't then become just a, a thing that happens in year 11. It's yeah. part of, you know, that study skills as they go along. Yeah. And and like one of the things that, like one of the opening lines in Professor Donoski's paper, the toolbox paper is, we spend loads of time teaching kids what they need to learn and not necessarily how to learn. Um, and so, yeah, that was another like big takeaway for me from, from the paper as well. So um, what was I going to ask you? So why do you think um, that books like the Inaction in series in particular are important? Well, how, how can teachers go about engaging with these things? What do you hope they can get from them? Um, I think um, they're just so, – so, so – there's lots of like academic papers, and I think there's um, and, and recently I think there's been a, a bit more of a uh, like I don't know if grassroots is the right word, but like a, a, a movement from like teachers, like actual classroom teachers, who have started like getting involved in in the writing of books, and so I think that's like they're doing that some of that work and bridging that gap from like academic research. Um, which like has value, but like obviously has limitations, right? Like it hasn't one of them being it hasn't been done in my classroom or like necessarily potentially even in like a school in this country. Um and so like the fact that we've got teachers who are coming in and getting involved in these sorts of books, be the be it the inaction series or otherwise, is a really helpful way of bridging that gap of saying, well, like I know that's academic research. Um, and yeah brilliant like, it works for them in their like laboratory conditions in the experimental conditions but I don't know what it means for me in in like my classroom the, the books are a great way of like navigating that um, problem and trying to figure out well I have a better idea like there's still some uh, like reflective practice involved in like you can't just like plug and play your stuff in in teaching like it just doesn't work like that when you're working with humans but it just makes it easier if like you have some guidelines, right? And I think books uh, like the Inaction series, like other um, contributions from, from people who are or recently have been working in the classroom, do, do that job really, really effectively. So other than books, which obviously is quite clearly the main focus of what I talk about with yeah. the from page to practice bit, but you know, other than books, do you think there are many other ways that teachers can engage with this, this notion of evidence-informed practice, either that you've experienced when teaching yourself or, or in your current role? What sorts of things would you, you advise people to do if you know, picking up a book isn't necessarily their cup of tea? 
yeah, for sure. So like podcasts, like you know, like, number one way. Uh, like really easy way now. Loads of colleagues who you know, I'll, I stick it on when I'm uh, on my commute to work, and I'll listen to it on my commute to work. Where like you're not, there's a a, a smaller time cost. Like you don't have to sit and find a place to listen to. You can obviously if you want to, but it's different to a book, right? Like you have to carve out that time for a book, whereas you can quite quite easily like put the podcast on whilst you're driving on your commute to work. So and and. I think podcasts like this one, like some of the other ones out there, again, do a really good job of bridging that gap of making some of this research like really, really accessible to teachers and get them thinking about the right sorts of things. Um, so podcasts is, is definitely one of them. Then you've got things like, uh, like research ed. So like I'm constantly blown away by the, the number of people who engage with it, the sort of level of thinking that um, people, both presenters and sort of, um, guests who come to to just visit the research ed talks like come with and and, the, and sort of the critical thinking that's going on at those sorts of events um, and of, there's obviously others out there uh, of other educational conferences but I think research ed is one of the best at a like ed, evidence informed practice and b giving a, a platform to people who who perhaps you know aren't involved in in educational research or CPD who who are like doing some of the uh, work like on the ground who are in schools who are you know teachers teaching and learning leads things like that um so those are, i think would, would be the the two uh most accessible ways outside of books like podcasts for sure and then yeah events like research ed that's great so before we move on to this final section one is there anything that you were hoping to discuss that we haven't had a chance to mention and two where can people get in contact with you um, no, like really enjoyed this conversation so far. Uh, thank you for that. Um, people can like Twitter's probably the best way. So my Twitter handle is at Sing G. But if you just type in Sing Amudbeer on on Twitter, I'm sure it will come up. Or Amudbeer Sing, uh, it, it will definitely come up on Twitter. Um, definitely easiest way of getting in touch with me. There's also a link to my blog on my Twitter bio, which I haven't I haven't used in a while. Um, but I promised it uh, I, I will get back on it over the summer when I find some time. Um, So yeah, those are probably the two easiest ways to get in touch. Sign up to receive the From Page to Practice weekly newsletter to read tips and advice from my guests, as well as information on upcoming episodes. Find the link in the show notes for this episode. Lovely. So the final round of the round, final section of the, the podcast is, is because... I feel like a quiz show now. Yeah, well, it kind of is. Because when yeah. I first came up with this, I thought, the yeah, quick fire round. And then I remembered, I'm talking to teachers who want to give like lovely <laughs> stories and explanations. So that bit went out the window. But the CPD library round is your chance to give me a book, podcast, person, article, whatever that you feel relates to this particular category. So first one, I feel we've kind of already discussed, but I'm going to go there anyway. Uh, First got you into evidence-informed practice. Um, Yeah, don't ask your strength in the issue in toolbox. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. as soon as I started to say that, I thought we've covered this. Um, So resonated with you the most? Resonated with me the most. Um, I feel like uh, is, is it is it unfair if I just say the same paper for all of these questions? Like, <laughs> if if no, I won't, I won't. I'll, I'll, I'll switch it up. Um, hey, you can you can say yeah, no, quite no. a lot of them. I imagine. I I reckon some of the papers around cognitive load theory. Um, mm-hmm. So 
it, I think reading some of those papers, so there's some um, from like it's CESE, I think it's the Centre of Educational uh, Excellence for Secondary Education, something like that, um, organisation from Australia. And they published some great papers on crisis load theory. Uh, and it it just helped make sense of things I was seeing in the classroom. Like I recognised these things and suddenly I had language to figure out what and why it was happening. That's great. That, I think that is a great example of when something's really, really helped. When you have that light bulb moment of, oh, that's what that is that I'm yes. seeing. I think, yeah, that's a great example. Yeah. Um, challenge your views. Uh, Daisy Christodoulou's book called Making Good Progress, like for sure was a very tough, not tough as in like hard to read, but tough as in like, you know, some have I been doing this all wrong is, is essentially the question that it prompted yeah um where am i at had the biggest impact on your practice yeah probably actually like um a combination of the the previous two so probably a combination of days christodoulou's book and um some of those cognitive load papers yeah sure in fact that those two link quite well and that's not yeah. something that's come up in conversation before actually but okay. actually if it has challenged your views then it is likely yes. to have a big impact on your practice, isn't it? And that's not come up. Honestly, you're like the, I don't know, 13th <laughs> person I've spoken to, and that's the first time that I've just clicked and gone, well, yeah, that, sh- that could yeah. be the same <laughs> yeah, yeah, text. Yeah. Yeah. Um, should be ECT or ITT required reading? Um, that, yeah, the, the cognitive low paper. <laughs> right. this, is, this is perhaps going to be quicker than anticipated, I'll be honest. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah we're nearly there. We've only got uh, four left. Uh, yeah. And this one might be a repeat too. Who knows? Inspired you. Um, uh, do you know what? I'm going to shout out a person for this one. Uh, nice. Or a, gr- a group of people. So um, I'm going to shout out the uh, the Masters team from Ambition um, when I started. So uh, Peps McRae, Emma Lark, Nick Rose, Steve Fonden, um, Carl Bailey, John Hutchinson. They were like the original uh, tutors on, on the Masters programme. And obviously like shout out to the support team as well. Um, they were the ones who got me involved in like evidence and full practice, help you know contribute so much to to the thinking and, and you know where my thinking is at right now. Um, so yeah, shout out to, to that group of people for sure. Great. Um, your most recent read. My my most recent read uh, is a book called Think Again, which I just happened to find on holiday uh, last summer, um, but it's. Uh, it links really nicely to some of the work I'm doing for Ambition at the moment around coaching and um, getting people, uh, or, or working rather, working with teachers to inform and change their practice. And what is next on the to-be-read pile? Uh, still got to finish that one first. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then the, the final one, and this can be taken a number of ways, it's, it doesn't exist but should. So it could be something that you think, Oh, I really want to know more about this area and I can't find it in one book. Or I think uh, early career teachers would find this particular thing really useful and I just don't think it's out there. So, yeah, it doesn't exist, but you think it should. Um, you know, like I, t- I was racking my brains when you when you sent the email through and had that, I was racking my brains trying to think of one. And it's really tough because every time I thought, oh, you know, oh, what about this? There would, there would be a book. So, like, the, I think two of them that do a really good job of this is uh, the two books from Paul Kirsch and Carl Hendrick, like how learning happens and how teaching happens. Like they just, yeah. they cover so much ground. Like there's so much in there that you're like, Oh, well 
I don't really know where else to go. Like they, they sort of answer all those questions. Um, so yeah, like if you'd asked me two years ago, it probably would have been those two books. Yeah. So let's just pretend we're in 2021. <laughs> absolutely fine i think it's really interesting to see where different people take this round and the you know the amount of if, if you sat and made notes on the things that everybody said you'd have <laughs> a reading list a mile long and a list yeah, of names sure. of people to look up but um i think that's a great resource for people to have so thank you so much for for spending this time with me today um really appreciate thank you for it having me. yeah no problem and um yeah well thanks bye cheers Bex. take care bye interested in evidence-informed practice? Do you have a favourite edgy book? Have an idea of what great CPD is and should be? Or to just generally have a chat about education? Please sign up to join me for a conversation. I rely on volunteers from all contexts and levels of experience. Visit learninglinguist.co.uk forward slash page practice podcast for the sign up form. I hope you enjoyed today's chat. The next episode is all about the book by the Maternity Teacher Paternity Teacher Project and I had a great chat about this with Hailey and Holly. You've been listening to From Page to Practice. Don't forget to join in the conversation using hashtag page practice podcast. Thanks go to Kevin McLeod of Incomtech.com for use of the tracks Cheery Monday and Fuzzball Parade which are licensed under Creative Commons.